Welcome to the Renewables Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams in the renewable sector. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent across the continuum from concept through commercialization and beyond in areas like energy storage, electric vehicles, hydrogen, solar, wind, and more. Here's your co-hosts, Mitch Robbins and Adam Sapi. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the Renewables Talent Lab podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mitch Robbins, joined by my co-host, Adam Sapi. And today joining us is Mr. Troy Bradykamp, who is the Senior Vice President of Government and Public Affairs for the Renewables Fuel Association based out in Washington, D.C. Now, Troy's no stranger to the energy, the renewables, or the agricultural space, having been a leader in the industry for well over 20 years. He's held positions like CEO for the Colorado Livestock Association, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation, the Executive VP and General Manager for the Nebraska Rural Electric Association. He was the Executive Director for Renewables Fuel uh, Nebraska. And now, as I mentioned, over the last three years, he has been the Senior VP here at RFA. Troy, it's our pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. And it's always good to, to have a, uh, a couple of fellas ask questions about uh, renewable fuels like ethanol. And I'm always happy to, to share the gospel. Well, with that said, today we really want to bust some myths that are out there about ethanol in general. And you and I spoke offline a couple of weeks ago, and I was just so intrigued by how many myths really are out there. Let's use this as a platform uh, to kind of break through some of those and really tell the truth if we can. So, Troy, if I was to ask you, what do you think the number one myth out there about ethanol is? What would you say? You know, it's a great question, Mitch. There are a lot of them, unfortunately. I think many of them have come from those that, that just aren't supportive of, of row crop-based biofuel like ethanol, but a lot of them are just decades old that, that came from the oil and gas industry when they did not want to see this competing liquid fuel uh, be developed. So they came up with a bunch of myths that, and they had a lot more money than we did back then and, and could <laughs> could spread those myths pretty easily. One of the biggest ones, and it's been out there for decades, gentlemen, and it's still floating around out there. And that is this concept that if I am making ethanol, I'm somehow taking food away from humans, where it's either one or the other, but it can't be both. And 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 we would wholeheartedly disagree with that assertion. And whoever's saying that really does not understand biofuels in general and what it takes or or the, the process it is to manufacture ethanol. So I'm just going to quickly step you through that. You know, we take corn from a field wherever, mostly in the Midwest, and we start the processing at an ethanol plant. So we grind that corn. All we're looking to get out of that corn kernel is the sugar or the starch. And, and so think of a giant still. Think of a giant copper still out there that's making moonshine. So ours are 100 million gallon per year type batch plants. But really all we're doing is grinding that corn. We're fermenting that corn. We are collecting, we're turning that starch into, into alcohol. We're collecting the alcohol. And for every bushel of corn, we're up to about three gallons of ethanol yield. And, and when I say ethanol, it's really 200 proof corn alcohol that is being developed from that process. But there's also other byproducts coming out of that corn kernel. None of it is wasted. Uh, we also collect about a 
pound of corn oil per bushel of corn that is processed. That goes into biodiesel production. That goes into renewable diesel production. So none of that is wasted. Then the, the third and primary product that is remaining is going to be something we call distiller's grain. And distiller's grain is really somewhere between 30 to 35% pure protein. And that protein value is then what is taken out to feedlots and to chicken coops and to hog facilities, and it feeds livestock. So that protein value, think of a high protein diet uh, where, you know, you're trying to build muscle. Well, you're still making food when you're returning that protein value into the food chain. And so really when people say we can't do as much ethanol as we're doing or we can't expand because you guys are going to be, you know, taking farm ground to to make ethanol and, and we aren't making food from that. First of all, you got to think about where we grow corn. And Adam, you're from Iowa. And, and so you understand we're, we're not growing lettuce and kumquats yeah. in Iowa, but we can grow some yeah. hellaciously good corn. And so we're basically taking ground that isn't really productive from a people food perspective and turning it into a, a product that we're now getting fuel from two different ways. And we're still getting food value because it turns into a feed additive that then goes to the livestock sector. So that's probably one of the biggest myths out there. When the oil and gas sector was really pushing back on, on our growth, they were able to put a coalition together that included a lot of people, including grocery store associations that said, oh, we cannot do this because it's going to take you know food away from someone. We're going to raise the cost of food. None of that has transpired over the last 15 to 20 years as we built out this industry. So that's probably myth number one, Mitch, that, that I would say needs to be dispelled. Uh, we can do both. We can do food and fuel, and we can do it in even higher volumes than we're doing today. Something tells me that's not the first time you've explained that, huh, Troy? No, <laughs> no. Unfortunately, I, it, it has to be done on a fairly regular basis. All right. So ethanol is not taken away from food source. What would you say is uh, another, out of the top three, what would you say is another common myth? Well, so one that goes along with that is land use. And Again, it, it kind of relates back to that food, but but the thought is if you're going to use all this corn for making ethanol, you're going to be ripping up forests and you're going to be ripping up native prairie and we're going to be farming everything and it's not going to be good for the environment. And again, that is one of those myths that is just not borne out to be true. Uh, when you go back to 2007, when the renewable fuel standard was passed as part of the energy bill in 2007, in that statute, in that federal statute, we are locked into a certain amount of acreage. So whatever the acreage was across the United States that was arable, that was being used for farming in 2007, that particular law being passed said, we're going to do renewables, but we're not going to do it with more farm ground than what we have today. And that, two seven, that 2007 acreage count was the baseline. It was 405 million acres in the U.S. at that time in 2007. Since then, we have grown out an entire biofuel sector, 17.9 billion gallons of capacity on just the ethanol side. The soybean folks are also making several billion gallons of biodiesel and renewable diesel. So we have a total renewable fuel uh, capacity of a little over 21 billion gallons. So we went from about 3 billion gallons in, in 2007 to 21 billion gallons of ethanol and biodiesel being used in the U.S. light duty vehicle market today. You think the acreage went up or the acreage went down? We're actually at 385 million acres being farmed today. 
So we're actually, grow, we've grown out that entire industry and we're farming 20 million acres less than what we did in 2007. So wow, that argument kind of falls flat with us. Now, there are those that are opponents of U.S. biofuel policy with that'll say, well, okay, that's just the United States. But now they're taking forest acres in the Amazon and tearing those down to grow sugarcane to turn that into ethanol. And while that may be true, that's really none of our control. We, we can't necessarily control that, but they would love to penalize us through something they call indirect land use change. Well, because you guys are so good at what you do and it's increasing demand for biofuels in the US, we're gonna hold you accountable for what's happening down in Brazil. That's a little tough for us to stomach on most days, if not all days. But that's a little bit of the politics that starts to factor in here when it comes to land, land use, how many acres are, are being used. And then that obviously folds kind of up into that food versus fuel concepts that, that we think are all just not not based in any type of fact whatsoever. Wow. This is all stuff that you're educating us on because I had no idea about any of this. And I'm going to leave a cliffhanger for, for myth uh, number three out of the top three myths that we're busting today with regards to ethanol. Adam, I'd love for you to jump in, man, because I know you've got some questions. Yeah, that you it's make great sure to have the, the subject matter expert on. And, and folks, Troy agreed to be on the show as long as Mitch and I would wear a blue shirt with him. So that that's why we're, we're all wearing. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But yeah, as I shared with Troy offline, I grew up on a farm in Iowa literally surrounded by by cornfields, hence uh, my traumatic uh, children of the corn experience as a kid. And these myths are very, very common, right? And, uh, you know, some of them like the, the piece where, hey, this is taking food out of your out of your mouths, you know, literally taking food off your table. That that was something I heard a lot. Um, I also heard it could drastically impact uh, engine performance in, in your vehicles. And we drove ethanol, you know, 10% ethanol all the way through. So I, I'm curious, and I've never actually researched that to see, hey, in a 10-year, you you know, window or anything like that, if there's any truth to that. And yeah, I'd love to ask you about that in terms of driving performance for your vehicle. How, how is that shaking out? Is there anything uh, favorable or negative or, or is it fairly neutral? There's a really good question. And I will say, so, so way back and, and Adam, we're, we're going to go back yeah. 30, 40 years. Okay. So we're going to go back to the late seventies when really it was just the advent of what was then called gasol. Yeah. It wasn't even ethanol. It was called gasol back in those days. You know, there were issues. So think about, again, we, we, we go back to what is ethanol. It's 200 proof alcohol, right? What do we do with alcohol? We mix it with water and we put in a drink and we enjoy that on an occasion, right? We do have a saying, you know, we drink the best and we burn the rest. But that would be the knock on, on ethanol is that it is uh, soluble with water. So it will dilute into water, whereas a petroleum-based product, the water just sits on top and never would, right? So ethanol can at some times pick up some moisture. Now we have very tight standards in terms of the quality and the water percentage that can be in a gallon of ethanol. It is less than 2% of that can be water. But even at 2%, you, you do add a little bit of corrosivity, you know, to that if it sits in a tank. So think about your lawnmower tank where you're not running it over the winter and, and it had an E10 blend in there. So 10% eth ethanol yeah. with 90% gasoline, that 10% ethanol may have picked up just a gauche of water, but that might rust the inside of the tank ever so slightly. So so there was things like that, that that were really, and then you had the whole vapor lock. Oh, you know, my car vapor locked. And you know, my I have, I have old farmers telling me today, <laughs> I will not use ethanol because it vapor locked my car. <laughs> 
call it back <laughs> in 1977. Well, engine right. technologies come a long way. Certainly, I think the product is way better than it used to be. And and, and keep this in mind, Adam. You'll you'll I think you'll enjoy this. Henry Ford, when he invented the Model T. We didn't have gasoline yet. So it was actually designed oh, wow. to run on corn alcohol. So the first massive mass produced automobile in the US was designed to run on alcohol. So it's not a foreign concept. Engine technology's gotten better, certainly. Yep, yep, that's absolutely correct. There's ways to hard harden vehicles. So think of E85. So, so that's a product that we'd love to see yeah. more of, flex fuel. And, and auto manufacturers back in the 90s and the 2000s were making a lot of flex fuel vehicles. They had the yellow gas cap on it and, and it had the FFV badge there on the back of the car. Those can burn 85% ethanol to 50% gasoline. Those have been, though, properly designed to do so. So there's there's some hardening where you can protect the, in, the inside of the gas tank or the inside of the fuel line. You could chrome those just to make a barrier to make sure there's no corrosivity going on. Um, then you need some different computer injector because you're taking in more oxygen because it's a because one thing that ethanol is is that it's high in octane. Usually high octane means better performance, right? We think that that's the case today. Those street racers out there that don't want to pay twelve to fifteen dollars a gallon for racing fuel. They use E85 because E85 is 105 octane and their high compression fuel injection, you know, 1100 horsepower beasts love octane. So there's a lot of ways to enhance it. And ethanol's done a good job of cleaning up a lot of those old myths about, you know, this is going to ruin your car. Also keep in mind, since 1979, every combustible engine approved and des designed and approved by the EPA to be used in the United States since 79 has been designed to okay. run on E10. So E10 is the standard fuel across the United States. 97% of all fuel in the United States okay. is E10 or higher. So there's at least a 10% blend. So that's your motorboat, that's your motorcycle, that's your lawnmower, your weed eater, yeah. uh, your car. All of that should be able to handle E10 okay. straight out of the chute. You know, we're trying to get E15 to be the new E10. It would be better for the environment because ethanol has a clear track record when it comes to the environment. And I yeah. that's my last myth, Mitch, and I will, I'll save that. But every car, every motor can run on E10. And then those that will run on little higher blends should probably have some protections placed to it. But you can do that even aftermarket. Awesome. So... It's a good product. I always say this. If you try and tell me that ethanol is bad for your engine, I'm going to put in front of you a glass of ethanol, pure ethanol, and I'll put a glass of gasoline. And which one of those are, your, are you willing to put in your own body? There's only one of those that won't kill you. So how can you tell me the product that would kill you is better for your engine Right. than the product you can actually drink. It, it, it just makes zero sense to me. Chuck Grassley and I have a, a very, we, we have a very similar thought on that. I think there's a tie, I think there's a clip out there somewhere I'm told. He, he literally wow. took, and, he, and he's not a drinker, but he, he took a vial of ethanol down to the floor of the Senate. He goes, if this is bad, 
how can I drink it? And he, he did the old struggle egg right there on the Senate floor. We got to meet him actually when I was in uh, ninth grade. It was pretty cool as part of a, as part of our school program. Uh, that was, that was very cool. He's one of the greatest humans ever. I I enjoy him a lot. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, this, this makes a lot of sense to me. I was born in the late seventies, 78. And so to see what it's gone and we're seeing, you know, biofuel, biofuels, like the vegetable oil that Willie Nelson's tour bus ran on back in the day. And now shoot two weeks. Yeah. Right. And, and uh, what, a couple weeks ago, Richard Branson just flew across the Atlantic in SAF with SAF, right? Uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And so we see where this is going. And the only question I was going to ask you, maybe I can ask you offline is, is there a scenario where we're going to E85 now where it's E50 or 6040 or anything like that? Or is there some threshold where that's going to, we're going to butt into science there? You know, there is a blend out there that we really, really like. And it's a really, the, the sweet spot is, okay. is in that E30 range, hmm. believe it or not. So if you were to blend 30% ethanol with 70% gasoline. You're going to get a lot of the tailpipe emission reductions um, that you would get even at higher ethanol blends with only a 30% blend rate. But most conventional vehicles, non-flex fuel, like the car you're driving today, can't handle it. The owner's manual will say, do not put anything but E10 or E15 in it. But we are doing pilot testing of just conventional non-FFV vehicles uh, using E30 uh, the state of Nebraska has been running a study on 50 different state vehicles for over three years now. Zero mechanical issues running E30 on just the standard conventional vehicle. And you get the you get the environmental benefit. You get a and if it's a high compression fuel injection type of in, engine, you're going to get as good, if not better, gas mileage at E30 than, than you are right now. So there's a lot of benefits, lots of ways. So it might not go all the way to flex fuel, but there's a really a, a range of, you know, E30, E40, E50 that, that are going to be, I think, become more and more prominent. And it's really going to be driven by lowering carbon scores. And that's the area we, we can we can certainly talk about next. So I was going to say, let's hit the audience uh, with the the third and final top myth uh, of ethanol. You started to give a little bit of a teaser uh, a couple of minutes ago. What is it, Troy? Well, I think it is that biofuels are are not good for the environment. That they really don't have the environmental benefit that we say that 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 they do. So this is one that the environmental community really disagrees with us on. They're they're like, no, you're not better for the environment. There's no environmental benefit when it comes to ethanol because they're trying to look at everything that went into the production of it and and say if you take into account all of the practices to grow the corn and to and to harvest the corn and, and then you guys process the corn and then that that finished product has to be shipped by rail all the way to California you know they say the life cycle analysis the carbon intensity life cycle analysis cradle to grave on that is not any better than petroleum gasoline and we would wholeheartedly disagree with on that. First of all, it's just not true. We actually, through models like the Argonne National Laboratories at the Department of Energy, their Argonne GREET model, which is one of the best carbon intensity energy analytical models on the planet. It's updated annually. It's got the most current data put into it. What it says is, when you look at just a regular dry mill ethanol processing biorefinery, it has a carbon intensity of about 57, and that's compared to a carbon intensity of 98 for conventional gas. Wow. So about 57% versus 98% carbon intensity for 
petroleum gasoline. So we would say we're at least 40% better than conventional gasoline today. But our members have gone a step further. We see ways that we can continue to be more efficient, not only within the plant, but the corn farmer is going to become more efficient. He's using, he's growing. Well, we talked about this whole land use and we talked about the fact that we've grown out this whole renewable fuel sector on less acres. That's happening because corn yields have gone up over time. They're jumping four to five to six bushels per acre year over year. And that's through crop science. That's through hybridized seeds. That's through just better soil efficiencies. Everything that's going into this is to drive less inputs and have better production. And that's what we're seeing from corn plant. So you add, and we have to, we have to account for everything from the time that that corn kernel goes in the field in Iowa. And if it's in Nebraska, mm -hmm. it's going to get irrigated. And that gets accounted for as well. All of the inputs get accounted for, including all the way it gets to the gas tank in California. And we're still at a CI score of 57. And that's without doing much, you know, fancy stuff. So then we talk about how do we get even better? Uh, we can do carbon capture and utilization. So one of the products that comes out of a biorefinery is that fermentation, you are actually releasing CO2. And, and, and so that's something that the you know, that everyone's concerned about, but it's a pure CO2. So it could be collected and it is being collected in many uh, biorefineries and it's being used for pharmaceuticals. It's being used for your Coca-Cola can, you know, cause, cause that needs CO2, but we can also capture it and we could sequester it deep in the ground. And that's what we're talking about doing. That would drop us another 25 carbon intensity points overnight. So now we take a product that's got a CI of 57 and now we're down to 28, 30. And now we look at the efficiencies down on the farm and we can go lower. And then we start to do uh, solar and wind production on site and get away from the grid. And so now we're producing, now we're producing ethanol using renewable electricity coming into our system. And we envision, we really do envision where we could be at a carbon zero, net zero carbon producing ethanol by 2050 or much sooner than that. So, so we're, we're pretty high on, on that opportunity. And when you're talking low carbon ethanol, now you're talking opportunities, not only to expand what we're doing in the light duty vehicle market, but people are looking for low carbon feedstocks in a lot of different sectors. So everything you make at a petrochemical plant, you can make at a biochemical or a biorefinery. Plastics and, and makeups and all that can come from that base ethanol molecule. But ours is a much lower CI than anyone else out there. So we have people coming to us on a regular basis saying, hey, we need low CI ethanol because we're going to start using it for to make green methanol or we're going to use it to make this super low carbon cleaner. So it's an exciting time. Or... As Adam mentioned, sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, there is a pathway that we could take ethanol to jet fuel, and it's still going to have a much lower carbon intensity than kerosene-based or petroleum-based jet fuel. So there are huge opportunities for us, and, and that means huge opportunities for agriculture across certainly the Midwest. So we're, we're pretty excited about where this future goes, but we do have to make sure everyone's following the same model, that they're accepting sound science, because we think this is sound science, that we are doing great things. Um, we're not ruining the environment. Tailpipe emissions are about half of what they are with conventional fuels. So there is 
you know, since the RFS was passed, the Renewable Fuel Standard was passed in 2007, there's been about 1.2 to 1.3 billion metric tons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere across the country. Uh, there's been no other program that EPA has ever implemented that has actually removed that amount of CO2 from the environment. So we've done good things. We continue to think we're going to do many more great things. We just got to make sure that the science and the policies reflect reality. And the reality is we have a product that we think is pretty superior and pretty cool. I tell you what, man, this has definitely been a schooling uh, for me, for sure. And I'm, I'm sure a huge value yeah. for our listening audience. I want to wrap up by asking you, what are you excited about with uh, with what's going on currently with RFA? What are some of the initiatives you guys are excited about? And uh, I'm going to make sure at the end, if it's cool with you, we leave a link to the Renewable Fuels Association so people can check out more. Oh, we would be, we would love you to do that, ethanolrfa.org. But we, we're excited, well, I, I think I just said quite a bit of it. I mean, we're, we're just really excited about where this future uh, goes for us, for not only row crop biofuels, but particularly corn-based ethanol. Uh, we think we could double what we're doing today. So I said we're at about a 17 or 18 billion gallon per year output or capacity in the U.S. Uh, biorefinery uh, fleet. We have 200 plants across the Midwest. We think we could double that over the next 15, 20 years. And we may need to, if we can get more of the gas tank, if we can uh, become prominent in the role of uh, manufacturing sustainable aviation fuel. If people are looking for a low carbon feedstock to make plastics with, we think there's a lot of excitement. Actually, right now we are doing a, we've done a pilot program. We've built a car. So so here's the one that'll shock you, but flex fuel, we've talked a lot about flex fuel vehicles and, and how they've been around for a long time. And OEMs, uh, which are auto manufacturers, really are not making a lot of FFBs anymore because there's just no government incentive for them to do so. The government incentives really are all on electric vehicles, battery mm -hmm. electric vehicles, uh, primarily because they don't have a tailpipe. So they assume those to have no emissions, even though we know the electricity had to come from somewhere. But we have put together flex fuel vehicle technology with plug-in hybrid electric vehicle technology. Uh, we bought a brand new Ford Escape plug-in hybrid right off the lot. And you can buy an aftermarket flex fuel vehicle kit for a couple hundred bucks and convert that car to flex fuel vehicle. So we took that brand new plug-in hybrid. Uh, we took it to the University of Nebraska. They installed the flex fuel vehicle aftermarket kit. We then hauled that car out to uh, University of California, Riverside, which is known for their automobile testing. It went through two weeks of testing on tailpipe emissions, on fuel efficiencies. That vehicle, as far as we know, is the first in the world flex fuel plug-in hybrid wow. that's ever been made. No, Toyota hasn't done it. Ford hasn't done it. They've never thought of combining flex fuel vehicle with plug-in hybrid. But the more people we talk to, including Toyota, they're like, you know, we're not sure the whole all battery thing is the way to go here. Uh, we think plug-in hybrid is is a much better option. It takes a lot less rare earth minerals to make a plug-in hybrid than it does to make an all battery electric vehicle. And the thing that Toyota loves about biofuels is that when it does have to switch over to liquid, it can now burn a product like E85, which is 85% renewable. So that's an exciting thing. That's we awesome. have that car we have that car right now being exhibited at the DC Auto Show here in Washington. That's starting today. It's actually a 10-day show. We hope we had a lot of uh, 
members of Congress that came to look at that car yesterday during the sneak peek. And, and so we're excited about where that, that opportunity goes. So, so there's, there's a lot of things going on. We're excited about where this goes. Uh, we're excited about this, this future that, that we're creating, not only for U.S. agriculture, but also just doing better things for the environment. There, there really is, when, when people say this is a win-win-win, we truly believe that biofuels like ethanol are a win-win-win, and we're excited to see where, where this whole thing goes. Well, I tell you about we can't uh, thank you enough for being here on the show and sharing the words of wisdom that you did today. And like I said, um, we'll make sure to put up a link in the show notes, not only to uh, the association, but to your LinkedIn profile in case anybody hears this and wants to, to get in touch, if that's good with you. That would be great, Mitch. All right. Well, thank you so yeah, much, Troy. Mr. Troy uh, Bradenkamp, the Senior Vice President for the uh, Renewables Fuel Association. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to the Renewables Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.